0: On this season of Mystery and Murder, we bring you a story so wild you couldn't make it up if you tried. Or could you? This is Dr. Phil diving deep on the case of Sherry Papini. You're listening to Supermom Missing. It's November 2016. Mother of two, Sherry Papini, has now been missing for three weeks. Her husband, Keith, is beside himself. He's been speaking out publicly, begging for her safe return. He calls his wife's disappearance excruciating and says he can't think about it too much because he just assumes, I'm going to get a call any second and she's going to show up at my house. Now, when you hear someone saying that about their missing wife, You just have to feel bad for them because you know, we all know, that that's never very likely the case. You know when somebody has gone missing, certainly the way she has, just out of the blue, no car keys, no credit card activity. They've just disappeared off the grid, off the face of the earth. You just know the chance of them showing back up is just not good. So you have to feel really bad when somebody's holding out that kind of hope. But maybe he knew something deep down about Sherry that we all didn't. Because believe it or not, that's almost exactly what happened next. It's around 4.30 in the morning on November 24th. Several 911 calls started coming in to dispatch about a woman who is either running or standing on the side of I-5. Now, California Highway Patrol obviously goes to check this out. When they arrive, standing there 146 miles away from where she disappeared is none other than Sherry Papini in the flesh. She's with a good Samaritan, a truck driver, stopped when he saw her. He called 911, waited with her until the officers arrived. Now, we all know how rare this is, right? How this never happens ever. Usually, if you're lucky, best case scenario is that a body is found, arrests are made, and the family then isn't tortured Looking for answers the rest of their lives, not able to get closure, not able to put their minds at ease that their loved one has been found. Or if someone is found alive, it's after years of hell, years of torture, years of imprisonment. We all know those famous few and far between cases that made headlines J.C. Dugard, Michelle Knight, who spent 11 years with Ariel Castro keeping her imprisoned with two others. You can discount them on one hand because they are rare. This was a woman who appeared to have been kidnapped and held captive, showing up alive just three weeks later. This was either a miracle or it was too good to be true. So let's talk about what was found when Sherry shows up. First off, obviously, she's alive, but she is not well. Here's what they see when they pull up to her on the road. A chain is looped around her waist. One of her arms is bound to it. She's got additional bindings hanging from her other wrist and both ankles. She appears to have lost a ton of weight. She was thin to begin with, so the fact that she's now even thinner Is shocking. The long blonde hair she had in her photos has been awkwardly chopped much shorter. She has some kind of really painful looking burn mark on her right shoulder. Investigators called it a brand, like you would brand cattle on a ranch. It's a phrase, they think, but they can't really make out exactly what it says. Her nose is swollen up like it's been broken. She's got bruises on her face. So clearly, she's worse for the wear. It doesn't look like she's had a good three weeks. She's right away transported to a hospital where they noted additional injuries. Rashes on her left arm and left upper inner thigh. Ligature marks on her wrist and ankle, so it appears that she's been bound in some way. Burns on her left forearm, bruising on her pelvis and the fronts of both legs to put it bluntly, she looks like she was beat to hell. And you don't need to be a cop to see this and jump to this, okay, this looks like a kidnapping or an escaped hostage situation. Looks like somebody has really been through it and threw themselves down a hill or whatever to get away. It looks like this has not been a pleasant situation by any stretch of the imagination. It's checking all the boxes of someone who has been restrained, beaten, and tortured by a captor. My Bessie Stormburst low top and weekend sneakers empower my summer adventures. Now, I went to New York last week because I had to do a press tour, and I was prepared to embrace the summer season to its fullest, no matter what it threw my way weatherwise. And I'd been going from interview to interview, like seriously, 15, 20 during the day. And then I went to a dinner with clients. I knew that in the middle of that dinner, I had to do one more really key interview. And in order to do it, I had to leave the middle of that dinner and that noisy restaurant for about 10 or 15 minutes. And sure enough, I got to the door to step outside where it was quiet and it was raining cats and dogs. But I had on my Vessi Stormburst, so I was able to go through all of that water on the sidewalk, across the street, to get into my car, so I could do the interview in the quiet. You want to stay prepared. Join us now and let us make this summer one for the books. Seize the sun-kissed days and thrilling escapades at vesseycom mystery for shoes that masterfully combine waterproof protection with urban elegance. Start your journey with Vessi and get an automatic 15% off your first order at checkout. The first page of a book never tells the full story. And those news alerts and headlines, like the ones we get on our phones, don't even scratch the surface of what the story is really all about. Stories are like people, multi-layered and complex. It takes some digging to find the truth, but when we find it, it can change our world. We like to dig the news on Merritt Street, essential television. Now, her toxicology report comes back negative. And why would they do a toxicology report? Because they need to do a baseline assessment to see what kind of condition she's in. Has she been drugged? Has she been poisoned? So they check everything. They do her lab work. They're checking her blood to see if there's toxic chemicals there because she may need Some type of antidote. She may need some kind of treatment for something that she's been exposed to or subjected to. So they're just checking this out to make sure they're treating her properly, diagnosing her properly. It all comes back clean. It all comes back negative. Now, at this point, after the initial medical exam, she's taken by ambulance to another facility. And this is when detectives are like, okay. It's time to ask her what happened. And you would think, well, wouldn't they ask her that when they saw her? Well, the first thing you do is make sure that she's safe. You want to make sure that medically you're not standing out there wasting time subjecting someone to questioning that, as I said, maybe has been poisoned, maybe has had some toxic exposure to something. So the first thing you want to do is make sure she's medically sound. I hear people all the time say, well, why didn't they pull up and say, where have you been and what happened to you? You first want to make sure that you're not wasting valuable time that could wind up costing someone their life or serious injury that if you had intervened sooner, it would have made a big difference. So first... Safety, medical safety, make sure their life is not in danger from something they've just been through. Now, what you're dealing with here is someone that presents visually a trauma. You also have to consider the fact that if someone has, in fact, been through a serious trauma, from a psychological standpoint, you don't want to push them to a point that they would what we call dissociate. Or shut down. Because if someone has been really traumatized, if they've been tortured, if they've been threatened, if they've been brutalized, you always have to consider that if you come at them aggressively, if you come at them in a let's hurry up and start asking a lot of questions sort of way, they could snap. And if that happens... You could lose them for a long period of time, and you could cause memories to go really, really deep and maybe never be recovered. The quickest way to get from A to Z is not always at the most feverish pace. Sometimes it's better to take it a little slow up front and let them determine how much they can process and how quickly they can do it. Detectives are now comfortable enough that during this Ambulance ride to the second facility, they do start to ask her a few questions about what happened. What can you tell us? They're not pushing her. They're just asking some questions. Hey, you know, what can you tell us and letting her set the tone? But even so, she immediately shuts down and refuses to speak to them. She says her abductors told her she was going to be sold and trafficked to someone in law enforcement. So she doesn't trust them. She says she'll only talk to her husband and says, I don't know you guys. I don't know if you're in my corner. I know my husband and I know my husband is in my corner. Now, the whole question at this point, looking at this with 2020 hindsight, you have to wonder is this the start? of her manipulating Keith, of her knowing right out of the gate, I need him to back me up. I need to set up a us versus the world with regard to Keith. She makes statements like these to police in front of him. Like she says she wanted to have sex with Keith, but he couldn't come home for lunch, so she went for her run and was kidnapped. Now, why would she say something like that? Well, first off, that's flattering to Keith, but it's also a little guilt-inducing. As this starts to unfold, we have to remember that we're dealing with a master manipulator here, and I don't believe that one word comes out of her mouth without an intent and without a purpose. She doesn't say anything without an intended impact. And when she gets back to her husband and she starts talking, you realize she's got several balls in the air. She's peddling this story about, hey, I, I've been told I'm going to be trafficked and law enforcement's going to be involved. And she's got that line going here with the police to hold them at base so she doesn't have to answer questions and thinks that's some valid, credible story that they'll believe about why she doesn't want to talk to them yet. Then she gets with her husband and. At this point, she's thinking, okay, how much do they know? I've been gone three weeks. They haven't been just sitting around twiddling their thumbs, so they're probably digging into my text messages. They're probably looking at travel. Who knows what they know? Have they been telling my husband that, in fact, I've been texting with, maybe meeting up with, talking to my ex or others? Who knows how much he's found out, is he going to say, oh, three weeks gone? Yeah, I I know where you've been. So she's got to start manipulating him the minute she gets in because she knows she's going to need him back in her play all the way. There's one person that knows what happened here for sure, and that's Sherry Papini. She is the manipulator. She's the marionette pulling the strings. So the minute she gets in front of him, she starts saying, oh, you know, I I wanted to have sex with my husband, but he couldn't come home for lunch. So what did I do? I went running, and I had our wedding song on while I was running, and that's why I was easy pickings. I had my headphones on. I couldn't hear somebody approaching. And what was I listening to? I was listening to our wedding song because I love you you're my husband. You're my one and only. I love you. And she left that playing on repeat when her phone was found. Now, he's missing her. He loves her. He's gotten this other information. Maybe. She's not sure, but she figures it's a good chance. But then here's this alternative story that he wants to believe. The wedding song is playing. And she says that her captors wanted to cut her hair to send it as a threat to her mother. And she said, you don't know me at all. It's my husband who cares. It's the two of us against the world. So she keeps carving him out Is it's you and me. It's you and me. Now remember, there's one person that knows what happened and it's her. And she knows I need somebody in my corner. If he turns on me, if he doesn't believe me, if he doesn't support me, I'm toast. I got to have somebody that stands behind me. So are these all little signs? Whether she's giving them on purpose or not, is she trying to make him feel like her protector? Of course she is. Someone that's loved by her. Why might she want or feel she needs him in her corner? Well, (laughs) She knows this could all come tumbling down, and she could start getting asked some really hard questions, and she wants somebody to lean into, somebody that'll stand by her side and say, hey, I'm the one with the most invested here, and I believe her, so how dare the rest of you question my wife? Now, let's get back to the ambulance ride in question. She says she'll only talk to Keith. So they give him the recorder, and she starts to tell her husband what happened. The cops are sitting there in the ambulance and later in the room, but it's her husband who's actually conducting the interview. Now, is this normal? Of course it's not. So why would she be more comfortable talking to her husband? Is this a police tactic? This isn't the typical thing you would do particularly if you are suspecting her of being a perpetrator here. If you're really suspecting that she's running a con here, then you would be reading her her rights. You would be questioning her for filing a false police report. You would be handling her as a suspect. But at this point, they realize at least suspect that they're dealing with a master manipulator despite the fact that she's presented with a lot of injuries. Does this mean he's cleared in their eyes? Because she's back. So at this point, either he's complicit in this, but what for? There's been no money paid to anyone. There have been no ransom demands. He obviously didn't murder her. So at this point, what crime would they suspect him of? And if she's willing to start telling him something, their idea seems to be, let's let her talk. If she's talking and she's not being questioned by us, we don't have to Mirandize her. She can tell him anything she wants to, and if it is what is called an admission against interest. That's an exception to the hearsay rule, and we can use it. Even if she's not Mirandaized, and even if it's hearsay, we can use that in prosecuting her. So, put all that aside, she tells her story. Now, regardless of who she is telling, law enforcement is finally getting some answers on where this mom of two has been for the past three weeks. She says two Hispanic women. Abducted her at gunpoint. She says she was on her run when a dark colored SUV with two Hispanic women drove past her. They saw her jogging, hit reverse, and backed up to her. One woman had on sunglasses and asked her for help. When she walked towards the woman, she says the door of the vehicle opened and showed Sherry that she had a gun, a small revolver. The woman told Sherry to put her phone down. That's when Sherry set it on the side of the road, and she says she got in the car. Now, understand, this would explain why the phone wasn't broken and actually looked like it was placed on the side of the road. But that doesn't explain why the hair was wrapped around it, as if it had been torn out of her head in a struggle. Look, if I was a detective investigating this, this is a detail that would stick out to me. I would be wondering, is she going to later say that she pulled her own hair out as a clue so people would know that it was her? Well, the phone's hers. Why would she need the hair to identify her? It just doesn't make sense. Sherry said the woman told her, look, we don't want to kill you. She said they wrapped something over her face. Well, she'd already seen their faces. Keith asked if that happened right away. She said she didn't remember and thought maybe she had been tased. Again, if I'm a cop, cops have all been tased. That's part of their training. And cops know you don't forget being tased. You've either been tased or you haven't. And when somebody says, you know, maybe I was tased, let me think. What else do you confuse that with in your life? Keith tried to get Sherry to describe the drive to where she was taken. He asked her how long the trip took, whether she felt changes in altitude, what she could describe about the vehicle she was in. She said all she remembered was the car smelling bad and claimed she kept falling asleep during the drive. Really? Falling asleep during the drive. If you've been abducted at gunpoint on the side of the road, Then, had your head wrapped up where you can't see, you go into fight or flight reaction at that point. Your adrenaline is pumping. You are jacked. The chance of you dozing off in the back of a smelly car with two women, one holding a gun on you, is not on the short list of normal reactions you're going to have. Your heart's going to be pumping all of your blood's going to be going to your periphery. That's not a relaxation meditation mode. That is an arousal mode. Falling asleep during the drive just does not add up to me from a forensic psychology standpoint. Sherry said she woke up in a room with different clothes on. So, Is she saying she fell so asleep that they changed her clothes without her knowing it? She said her abductors cut her hair and put an adult diaper on her. There was also a closet with a bucket and kitty litter in it for her to use as a toilet. She said the closet had shelves and a metal pole that she was connected to by cable, and she said she could reach a bed, but she could not reach the door. She said she had a chain also around her waist that was bolted into the ceiling and there were boards on the windows of the room she was kept in. She said she tried to manipulate her abductors to give her more information about why she was abducted, including offering to clean and cook for them. She claimed she tried to escape and that's when she was branded. Now, She said her abductors told her that someone was going to buy her and the buyer wanted her branded. Well, wait a minute. I thought she was branded as punishment for trying to escape. But now she's saying, no, a buyer wanted her branded. She said they brought a table in and tied her to it when they branded her. Her skin made a sizzling, popping sound, and it was very painful. Okay. There are so many logical inconsistencies in what she's saying there that investigators had to be hearing this and saying, I'm just not buying this. It it doesn't add up. It doesn't make common sense, some of the things that she's saying, as I pointed out going through the descriptions. Now, at this point, the cops need to know who they're looking for. They want a sketch artist on this. Now, she described her captor in detail, but not many of the details were useful. According to Sherry, one was an older woman and the other was younger. They also wore masks, lace masks or a bandana, and short black leather gloves. Oh, they weren't wearing masks. Or bandanas, when they stopped, one had on sunglasses. She didn't mention that initially. The younger abductor was smaller with curly, long, brown hair. The older woman was taller and fat and had straight, dark black hair with grays in it and a raspy voice. The first version of sketches go out based on these descriptions. She also described their relationship and personality. She said the older woman was really mean and the younger one was kind of reluctant to be involved. She said the older abductor hit the younger abductor. She never saw this happen, but she could hear it. And that the older abductor liked to hit her, the younger one, and that the younger one would mostly yell at her in Spanish. She described the older woman is really mean with breath that smelled like sweetened coffee. She said her abductors fed her once a day, maybe rice or tortillas, and sometimes apples. If she behaved, her abductors gave her additional food. She stated that many times her abductors gave her cream of wheat to eat and described how everything tasted horrible and was like some kind of leftover afterthought. Investigators asked if she ever heard anything distinct that might lead them to where she was held. She said, I heard birds. I never heard anything else. They put the stereo right outside my door and played it super loud. Now, they noted that while she remembered very detailed things like the smell of coffee breath, she had a hard time remembering many details about her abductors, like the clothing they wore or words or anything that would identify brands on clothing or hats or anything that could identify where she was held. Now, at the time you're abducted, particularly if they're holding a gun on you, A lot of victims may not see anything except that gun. Small revolver can look like a cannon when you're the one on the business end of it. But she was there for three weeks, according to her. And during that time, that flight or fight reaction that I described subdues. And she says herself, she started to try and manipulate them. She started to negotiate. She offered to cook. She offered to clean. She's tried to handle them. So while you might not remember details during an abduction, across a three-week period, you study nothing but details you start paying attention to behavioral patterns. You pay attention to everything around you because you start thinking details matter. That might be what gets me a release. That may be my way to escape from here, and that might be what gets them caught if they ever do get caught. So I need to pay attention. When you spend a long time, you study What's going on? And she remembered a few very specific details, but strangely enough, they were very peripheral, and she remembered nothing that helped authorities track her abductors down. Coffee breath, but she never caught a name. Birds, there were millions and millions of birds around. They're everywhere but nothing useful. Traffic or no traffic, a stream or river going by. She didn't mention whether they ever used each other's names, whether phone calls came in or not. Nothing that helped. Now, of course, it's normal to complain about food when you're sitting chained up and branded, it's normal to complain about your conditions when you're chained to a pole and to a ceiling, of course, but that's also when you start paying attention to all of those details. Was there a brand name on that pole, stenciled at the bottom? Were these hollow core doors? Was there anything about the room, eight-foot ceilings? Higher ceilings? Commercial building? Residential building? Did you hear other people around? Did you hear machinery? Anything? Nothing. Nothing. When someone's trying to lie, when they're trying to sell a bill of goods, they focus on peripheral details to the exclusion of things of core interest. And oftentimes you'll hear liars really obsess about peripheral details. It seems like they're telling you a lot, but it's things on the margins. It's nothing that really matters. She seemed to be hiding in minutia and giving them nothing that helped. She said she couldn't remember what happened. Most of the day, she was freed, but thought the younger captor might have been saying something like she thought Sherry needed medicine. She said she heard a gunshot and then screamed until she fell asleep. She said then the younger abductor came to get her to leave, and everything happened really fast. Well, what do you mean she came to get her to leave and everything happened really fast? Did she shoot the older woman? Is that what she's talking about? She was in the car with a pillowcase over her head and she couldn't stay awake. When they were taking her away, when her life was on the line, has somebody been shot and now they put a pillowcase over your head and they're moving you and you're falling asleep? Is this your death ride? Are you kidding me? It's weird she keeps saying she can't stay awake. But remember, she's not been drugged. They haven't put anything in her food. She hasn't been tranquilized. Her toxicology report was clear. She said her captor suddenly stopped the car and told her to get out and just sped off. Well, they've got three weeks of sweat equity into this. Why? Why would they just let her out and drive away? And was she in the car alone? Her abductor was already far away by the time she was able to pull a pillowcase off of her head. Why is that the case? She says she ran to a church and banged on the door, but nobody was there. Then she ran to the freeway. Well, okay. It just doesn't add up. Okay, so let's look at this through the authorities' eyes. Despite what they may be thinking, they start looking for the abductors, right? Based on the description Sherry provided, the cold, the distance where she was found, investigators believed she had likely been held in a mountainous location and focused their search efforts for the kidnappers In areas of higher altitudes. Remember, she was found 146 miles away from where she was abducted. Her clothing was collected for DNA sampling, including her sweatshirt, sweatpants, socks, and underwear. And she told investigators that this was her original underwear from the day of her disappearance. Now, did they give it back to her? Because you remember, she woke up and they had changed her clothes and she had been put in a diaper. But they also gave her a makeshift bathroom facilities with kitty litter and a bucket. I'm not sure what the diaper was for. For several months, as Sherry began to quietly heal from her ordeal, the community remained feeling terrorized here because people were scared. If this could happen, they just pluck somebody off of the road jogging, it could happen to anybody, and certainly women and children. Some were terrified that these evil kidnappers were on the loose and they could come back and take somebody else. Others, specifically Hispanic families, lived in fear that they would be falsely accused or judged. Then there were some, like us at the Dr. Phil show, and investigators behind the scenes who were still thinking, this dis did not pass the smell test. It just didn't add up, because these things follow a pattern, and it's usually a tragic pattern, but a pattern nonetheless. Yes, she had these injuries, and they were severe enough that you would have to be really, really unhinged to do this to yourself. A branding, you got to be committed to your lie. You got to be committed to your con to go branding yourself. We're not talking about roughing yourself up a little bit, scuffing yourself up against the side of a house. It's more than that. But there was just something in this story, and I've named several things off as I was going through her account that really had people thinking she was lying. She was gone, girl. Now, as I said, we looked at this, and a big red flag to us our team. We're known for doing big interviews with people who have survived trauma, kidnappings. We're known for helping people heal and to tell their story because it's very cathartic when they do that. We reached out to Sherry and her family. In fact, we'd been reaching out to help the whole time she was missing, to get the word out, to raise awareness. And then when she was found, Keith was doing interviews, so it wasn't like they didn't want to speak to the media. Her behavior, it made her seem like the kind of person who was really happy to share her story. She didn't seem like someone that would be saying, hey, respect our privacy here. We need time to heal as a family. She didn't seem overly traumatized. She hired a PR team But yet, when we tried to get in touch with her to see if she wanted to share her story, even to just speak off the record, she was not cool with that. Her family shut it down harshly with a straight-up no. She would not respond and was basically in full-on hiding incognito mode. Now, even if someone isn't ready to talk, They always respond and say, hey, thank you. We know that you've helped so many families in trauma. We're just not ready to do that right now. And I remember my producer telling me that when people go that out of their way to avoid me, it's usually because they've seen me ask some hard questions and talk about inconsistencies. Now, it wasn't just us that smelled a rat here. But time passed. Sherry wasn't charged with anything, and investigators continued to look for her kidnappers. They believed there was a chance that this was all true, that these people were sex traffickers, that they'd kidnapped Sherry, a pretty young blonde, to sell her. But behind closed doors, they also noticed tiny red flags in her story. And just because that seemed plausible, they knew they shouldn't just take what she was saying at face value. Now, after Sherry told her initial tale to her husband, they brought her in to go over the same details with them again. They told her they were going to ask questions that might seem trivial or dumb, but that she should trust that there was a reason the detectives were asking those questions. She said she understood because she watched a lot of crime shows on television. Well, he apparently didn't watch them closely enough because right away detective noticed discrepancies. Maybe tiny at first and small changes she made to her story. She embellished and revealed more details out of the clear blue sky. And trust me, when people get comfortable and they start answering questions that are not asked, that is a clear sign that they're selling too hard. And that adds up to fiction. If you think you're getting away with something and you can't resist all that attention I believe it was Cardinal Richelieu who said Give me nine lines of dialogue and I'll hang any man. You just keep talking it'll come back to bite you. Well next week We'll tell you what she said that gave investigators a gut feeling that she was straight up lying about her kidnapping. But the big mystery remains, then what the hell happened to her in those three weeks? She shows up emaciated, her hair chopped, beaten up and chained. Again, these didn't seem like injuries you would just do to yourself. What is this woman hiding? We'll get into all of that and more on the next episode of Mystery and Murder. You don't want to miss it.